A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. So one of the things that's happening right now around the world is that you have all these couples, happy ones, struggling couples, couples in that kind of, you know, things seem okay, but I don't know, haze. Tens of millions of couples confined for weeks now. The relationship's being remolded by this lockdown. It's an accelerator. It's a relationship accelerator. So it, it, it rearranges the priority and throws the superfluous overboard, you know, in a very clarifying way for many of us. Wondering what's happening with couples, I reached out to Esther Perel, who's a couples therapist. If you've heard of her, she's probably best known for this idea from her book, Mating in Captivity, that it takes a toll on couples and kills passion when there's not enough distance between the partners. And they turn to each other for everything, for friendship and a sense of identity and comfort and everything a whole village used to provide a person. And she's very aware that under lockdown, people are literally turning to their partners for everything. These days, she's seeing a full schedule of couples, more than she usually does. Interestingly, she says this is an unusually good moment for therapy. Under lockdown, lots of clients are opening up and figuring out things in ways they don't normally. Like some of the men in the couples. It's like for the first time, they're actually doing therapy. It's exciting. Basically because they stopped, they slowed down their home and and they're they're like they're like this blossoming of opening up and wow three dudes you know three men that are it's just exciting like i don't want to get off the phone because you know it's very moving for most of the couples that you're seeing what's your sense has the lockdown been good for them or bad for them hmm. this is such an interesting thing to say um really both Really both. I can't say one or the other. The couples struggling the most are pretty much exactly the ones you'd expect. People who, even before all this, were quick to pick at their partners and criticize them and argue over who's sacrificing the most for whom. But also, in this moment when our lives have been so profoundly disrupted, another group doing badly? People who, you know, they've lost someone or they have someone who's sick or they are, they are anxious, they are worried, and basically their partner is unable to have an empathic response. You know, what are you worried about? It's like there's nothing, you know, and people tell you, you know, my partner is the last person I'm turning to for anything I'm feeling right now. It's like I have nowhere to go with this, to just kind of be able to be upset or scared or this constant sense of loss just of the, the world they've known, their own identity, their work, all of that. The extreme circumstances are also driving people to reprioritize. Esther has seen couples split up and others move in together. And what I found most fascinating, role reversals. She's counseling one couple where one of the partners was always seen as the insecure one. She'd struggled through a traumatic childhood. It was agreed between the two of them that she was the troubled one who leaned on her stronger, more together partner. But now, with the deadly virus everywhere, She's found that her difficult childhood gave her all kinds of coping and managing skills. She's basically, you know, I have known chaos. You put me in this crisis, I know what to do. I knew what to do before anybody around me. I was in that supermarket. I even knew to go to stuff for the parents of my girlfriend who are who is not even here because I knew that they would need this. And I just felt like now the world is clear to me. I know what it needs from me. Mm-hmm. And you know, in this particular relationship, it's two women, and uh, it was a very interesting thing because it, it had, it, I don't think that side of her had ever been known. It had always been described as, you're the one with the issues because you come from this very traumatic background. So she became the functional one in the relationship. It, it was like a whole different way of being, but it was also a revelation to herself. Hmm. This turned everything around. Suddenly, she wasn't seeking her partner's approval all the time. She didn't need it, which, of course, is healthy and great, except for the partner who is used to being the strong one. Like, it's one thing to wish that the person you're with is more assertive and less needy. What do you do when you get that wish? It made her uncomfortable. And the way this played out did not surprise the stare. Oh, when, when, I, when I'm not comfortable with someone who is emancipating right next to me, I basically try to make them doubt themselves again. Because if they doubt themselves and if they're not sure, then they come to me. 
So that's what she was doing? Yes. In, in all kinds of very subtle ways, of course. It, you know, this is not flagrant. So she would say things to encourage her formerly dependent partner to second-guess herself, to doubt herself. Things like, It's so interesting that you want to do that. I thought you didn't really, that, that was not what you wanted to do. Or you, you, meant, you once mentioned to me that, that's, that you don't want to bring your mom, you don't want to call your father. Little doubts. It's a bit of a mind twist. Just gentle mind twist. You don't mean to. You, 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 it looks like it's a very rational conversation. With other couples, Esther Perel says being on lockdown is forcing them to confront things that they'd have been avoiding. Might have never actually stopped to figure out. There are a couple like this on her podcast. She does a show called Where Should We Begin? She records therapy sessions with real couples who volunteer to do this anonymously on a podcast. And right now, all the sessions are couples on lockdown. In episode two of this season, the couple was living apart before COVID-19. They had been together, living in Italy, but she got a job offer in Germany. It caused a huge rift. She moved to Germany with her teenage daughter. He didn't. Then, this year, when Italy became a hotspot for the virus, he finally moved in with them. And finally, he and she had to deal with each other. They were on the verge of, of, of divorcing the moment this is over. You know, this is an interesting situation because COVID-19 basically brought them together under one roof. They have been apart for a year and a half and each one feels the other one abandoned them. Mm-hmm. So COVID-19 resolved the standoff between them because neither of them had to make the decision because the, right. the virus decided. And now they're under the same roof and neither of them had to give in. But once they're together, they are in a constant, you know, it's like one person talks, the other one listens, until they found the thing they can disagree with. And that's where they enter. And now they're going to start arguing. And it's interesting, there's a point where, like, they keep having the same fight over and over. And you keep saying to them, stop having this fight. And um, and there's a moment in the session where he actually is being uh, kind to her and sort of inviting. And it's so interesting what happens. Like you said, I am very busy, and today I wanted to cook for you instead of doing something else. So I did that without even telling you. And these are the things that you don't appreciate. No, I appreciate, but would have been better if I would have cooked, and then we were eating all together. So you, you did a great thing today to cook the lunch, but you didn't have lunch with us, basically, because you were between two holes. You had just five minutes to eat, and I prefer to eat anything with you besides you cooking to let us eat you know what i mean i don't know let's plan what make us happy maybe because it would have been better if we would have shared those 15 minutes of the lunch i also can't make it right no no but there is there is nothing wrong did you hear this as a criticism yes Uh, but it's not is not. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I would love to have lunch with you and I would prefer to cook instead of you. If you have to spend those 15 minutes cooking for us, it's better that you make one call in those 15 minutes while I'm cooking and then you dedicate the next mm-hmm. 15 minutes just to eat together. I'm not criticizing anything. But I'm scared to ask you to cook again because I see all the things that you're doing right. Uh, what the fuck? I'm just cooking. But one second, one second, one second. <laughs> And this moment was important. If you go so fast, you'll, you'll miss this. Because you want to know if he cares. And he just told you, I would rather eat with you whatever. He just gave it to you on a platter. But you only heard the piece about it would have been better if you hadn't cooked. You didn't hear that what he meant with that was because I would have wanted that time with you. It's like you hear that which you want to hear even if it's what you fear hearing and that you're not hearing what he's actually telling you. I'm not so sure that love is gone, but I think that the lovers have become invisible to the love that is. That's wow. What did she just say? Oh my God, that was the wow effect.
She says this thing to the couple that, I don't know, maybe anybody who's ever been in a couple would find useful. She says to them, notice that behind every criticism, there's a wish, a wish to be closer. Esther says she sees other couples in the same situation as this one. They're stuck in the same fight, and everything leads back to that fight. Everything the other person says. And they're too far gone to fix it. But what this couple was able to do, she says, was put aside the fight for a moment and talk about the feelings they were having for each other underneath all that. By the end of the therapy session, they're speaking in a sincere and heartfelt way that they hadn't in a long time. So I called you when this crisis started, and you came to take care of us. And I appreciate that. And I don't want to lose this. This COVID-19 for this couple will save the couple. That was literally otherwise on its way out. They were going to do another one year of fighting like this. And then, you know, one of them would meet somebody else. And that would be the end of that story. 17 years. It's not like they've just met yesterday. Other couples don't get to this point. Episode three of her podcast this season is another couple who cannot stop themselves from fighting the same fight over and over. They decided to divorce two weeks before lockdown. And since then, it's gotten so much worse. Living with someone who's has so much contempt for me and feels that I am trying to control you by asking you to isolate with your family, which is what the governor is asking us to do. And I'm sorry that that doesn't work with your social plans, but this is a time that I'm people are suffering. That. I can't argue with you anymore. No, but That's you right. are. I'm, I'm saying I'm not happy about it. But, but you, but like, you are, you are arguing. Like I have a choice. You were arguing as of no yesterday. And it's interesting. You lecture them in that episode a few times with a tone I feel like we don't usually hear from you. Yes, I'm basically saying you have a task to accomplish. You are in lockdown together, and this is your mission right now. That's your project. What you feel about each other is rather irrelevant. You, you are two parents. You chose to be here in this house together. What are you going to do? Piss on each other the whole time just to remind the other that you kind of dis, dis, resent having to be here? Or are you just simply going to try to be as civil as you can be and make this tolerable for everyone? For so many couples, the stress of lockdown makes things worse. There are already reports from China as it comes out of lockdown that divorce may be on the rise there. So, who are the couples who are doing better? Who does better? is the people who think, what can I learn here? What is this telling me about what actually matters in my life or what I really want to do? I'm becoming more aware of things because, A, we have never slowed down like this. Never on a global level have we slowed down like this. It's a long time that we have only been accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. And for the first time, and I don't think we have begun even to understand what this is going to do to you, to have had to really, you know, experience what that kind of a slowdown will do. Who will I be when this is done? Who knows? Seriously. Trying to guess the ultimate effect of this national shutdown on couples, on our kids' education, on the economy, on ourselves. It's like the virus has thrown the future into this black box. We can make our guesses. We can just accept we'll know when we know. And for those of us who like more certainty in our lives, well, tough luck. Today in our program, we have people trying in various situations to live with a lack of information. Not happy about that fact at all, but doing their best. From WBZ Chicago, this is This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Equine, a phone flickers in the dark. So one part of the world where there's a kind of information vacuum, at least for those of us who aren't there, it's a kind of black box, is Xinjiang, China. If you picture China, okay, it's in the northwest corner, far from China's big cities, the size of Mexico, nestled up against Kazakhstan and a few other stands. And ethically, it's been more like them than like 90% of China. For instance, it's home to the Uyghurs, who speak their own language that's close to Turkish not Mandarin Chinese. Most Uyghurs are Muslim. And for a long time, the Uyghurs faced discrimination and arbitrary detention in China. 
If you follow the news, you probably know that this escalated beginning in 2014 when the government started accusing hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs of supporting terrorism and wanting to separate from China and sent them to so-called re-education centers, the better described as internment camps. Former detainees report being beaten. Women have testified that they were forcibly sterilized. State Department has estimated that up to 2 million people were held in these camps. But information about what's really going on in Xinjiang is hard to come by. And for Uyghurs outside of Xinjiang, who want to check in on their families back home, well, some families are effectively blocked from all communication. Others, the government monitors phone calls. And you don't want to say anything that will lead to officials banging on your family's door. So Uyghurs in the diaspora have turned to TikTok. Yes, older listeners, you think of TikTok as the app where the kids are making dance videos and jokes that you do not understand. But the app started in China. The Chinese version of TikTok is called Douyin. It is insanely popular, over 400 million users a day. And because it's so visual, the government is not so great at censoring it. As a result, it's a place where uncensored content gets out of Xinjiang. There are videos posted by Uyghurs, but also by government officials who've been sent there to manage Uyghurs. Here um, is a TikTok video that seems to have been posted by an official who's been assigned to live with a Uyghur family in their house as a kind of minder. Seems like maybe he posted this to show, you know, everything's fine, we're getting along, everything's great. In the video, the minder is eating breakfast with the two kids from the family in their garden. He smiles at the camera, turns it to the little boy eating next to him. And then, in Uyghur, the boy says to his mom, When my dad comes home, this guy will leave. Mom, is he coming on Monday? The official doesn't seem to understand a word of that. Now, here is a video posted, uh, presumably, by somebody who's Uyghur. It's a woman with long dark hair sitting in her car while the song Faded by Alan Walker plays in the background. You were the shadow my life. Okay, there's something off about this. It is not a normal TikTok video of somebody dancing. She's beating her chest with her fist to the beat. And then you realize there are dozens of these same kind of video using the same song, everybody beating their chest. It's like a virtual protest. Still, like I say, there are lots of Uyghurs trying to figure out what's going on in Xinjiang and what's happening to their own families there. Dury Buskaran is a reporter living in Turkey, where a lot of Uyghurs have settled, many of them in the last five years. She's been talking with one man for months who's been obsessed with these TikTok videos and with anything else he can find that'll give him a look inside Xinjiang's black box. Because what he values the most in this world his wife and son and the rest of his family are stuck inside. Here's Dory. Abdurrahman Toti fled China seven years ago after getting arrested and tortured for learning Arabic. He wanted to read the Quran. Today, he still doesn't have much feeling in his feet. But let me tell you how he met his wife, because it's a sweet story. When Abdurrahman got to Istanbul, he wanted to settle down and start a family of his own. So he turned to his dad back in Xinjiang, the person he trusts most in the world, and asked him to help him find someone back home for him to marry. His dad went around, talked to other parents, and he found Parita, a biology student with brown eyes and a kind face. Abdurrahman and Parita talked on WeChat. That's the main social media platform in China. They couldn't say much because they knew the government monitored calls to foreign numbers. The conversation was stilted, but they got a sense for each other, and they decided to get married. So she packed her bags and boarded a plane to Turkey. Abdurrahman was so excited. So the plane should arrive at 2 o'clock in the night. Uh, so I went to the airport to pick her up. I bought a big rose flower and uh, I put a Quran in the middle. Uh, and I put uh, a ring uh, on the top of the Quran for uh, picking out her up from airports. He brought a photo of her to make sure he could figure out who she was. He was in the terminal with a group of friends, waiting. People were streaming out of the customs area, and he sees her. I go to her and I ask, is this you on the picture? <laughs> so she asked, who is the, the girl in the picture for you? So I said, it's my wife. <laughs> so she said, are you crazy? You don't recognize your wife? Then she left. It wasn't her. It's not Parita. And Abdurrahman's starting to worry, like maybe she's not coming. Then he sees someone else who looks like her, goes up to her, shows her the picture. 
She's like, no, that's not me. But as he's turning to leave, she calls him back. It was her. She pulled her phone uh, out and uh, showed me my picture and asked me, are you this guy in the phone, in the picture? And I say yes, and that's why we met first time. She was messing with him. I put the ring uh, on his uh, hand and I gave her the flower and uh, the Turks around us asking what's happening, are you getting married, where are you from? Suddenly it became a kind of party, people are giving us gifts, uh, all kind of chocolate candies and uh, saying congratulations and it was a really happy moment for us. A police officer working at the airport says, hey, I'm weaker too. He gives them a police escort back home, lights flashing. It's like a movie. Not too long after, Abdurrahman and Parida had a son. They named him Abdulaziz after his grandfather. And Abdulaziz becomes his dad's mini-me. Everything Abdurrahman did, Abdulaziz would follow, from the way he stood to his table manners. He likes the car. Even when I'm driving my car, he, he wants to sit in front of me and uh, drive with me. This was in a parking lot. Abdurrahman was teaching Parida how to drive. And 18-month-old Abdulaziz would sit on his dad's lap and grab the stick shift. He'd throw a fuss if he couldn't. He was really cute. He used to try to copy everything I do. But Abdurrahman's relationship with Prida's family was rocky, right from the start. Abdurrahman is religious, but her family is secular and pretty wealthy. But the heart of the problem was that Prida's parents felt like she was wasting her education in Turkey. She had a degree, but she wasn't using it. She wanted to stay home with their son. When Abdulaziz was born, Parida's parents started asking her to come back to Xinjiang for a long visit, maybe even to leave Abdulaziz with them for a while. In weaker families, it's really common for grandparents to take care of their grandkids for their first five years of life while the parents work. The pressure from back home got really intense, but Abdurrahman and Parida were hesitant to leave Turkey. For starters, Abdurrahman couldn't go with her to Xinjiang because he was sure he'd be arrested if he returned to China. And by this point, it was 2015. They'd been hearing whispers about added surveillance, about Uyghurs being detained in Xinjiang. They don't know exactly what's happening, but they know it's not good. I asked my wife, what do you say? If you want to visit them, uh, we can try, but I don't feel good about it, and I, I afraid you will not be able to come back again because of the situation down there. And she said, no, are you crazy? I really don't want to travel. Parida's parents kept insisting that it was safe, at least for them. They were loyal to the party, and they had high-level government contacts. They're not religious. If Abdulaziz was with them, they said, it would be okay. They were pushing, but Abdurrahman and Parida kept saying no. A few months later, Abdurrahman was walking by a pretzel shop in his neighborhood when the police stopped him and asked for his residency papers. His permit had lapsed. He'd applied for a new one, but it hadn't arrived yet. So they arrested him, took him to a detention center. This happens to a fair number of Uyghurs in Turkey. They'll be detained for a paperwork issue, and they'll get stuck for a while. In Abdurrahman's case, he was locked up for three months, allowed just one phone call home every week. Parida, meanwhile, was home alone with their toddler and pregnant, close to her due date. When Abdurrahman finally got out, his whole world had changed. His wife had given birth to their second child, a girl, and his son, Abdulaziz, was gone. He was in China. Parida's mother had come for a visit and arranged for the trip back. Abdurrahman felt tricked. He didn't even get to say goodbye. It's like his in-laws waited until he couldn't interfere and then sent his kid away. He says he never would have let Abdulaziz go to China. Did you, I mean, when, when you had that first conversation, did, did you and your wife fight about it? I mean, did you, were you upset? Were you angry? Like, what was your physical reaction? I was sad, of course, but I didn't argue or fight with her because she was also under pressure. One shot, one in, at one side, she got me, and on the other side, her family pressuring her. So I also wanted to make it easy for her. Parita said she wanted to go back with the baby, just for a short trip, make her parents happy. Then she'd come back with Abdulaziz. Abdurrahman wasn't crazy about the idea, but he agreed. 
drove them to the airport. It was hard feeling, but uh, I feel I couldn't do anything else. And so they flew away to go to a place where only fragments of information ever make it out. The plan was that Parida would contact Abdurrahman on WeChat once they'd arrived and felt like it was safe. But he didn't hear from them. He called her parents again and again. They never picked up. He started to panic. But this isn't entirely abnormal because of how difficult it is for Uyghurs to communicate with their families in Xinjiang. He was hoping that that was all it was. After two months of this, he says, a distant relative who was visiting Istanbul on business contacted him and said, let's have lunch. They met. He had news. It wasn't good. Police arrested Perita as soon as she and the baby arrived in China. She was interrogated and beaten, the cousin said. She was in prison, serving a 10-year sentence. He thought it was because she lived in Turkey. Human rights observers say they've seen several cases where Uyghurs in Xinjiang have been punished for communicating with people in Turkey or other predominantly Muslim countries. It's not illegal, per se, but it can get you in trouble with the government. It's like you burn inside, something as eating you from inside. It's eating you from the inside? Yeah, because uh, you have a lot of pain, but you cannot do anything. Their children are with their grandparents, his in-laws, so at least they're safe. But he can't get his wife out of prison. He can't even call home or try to get more information without endangering his family. Because he's living in Turkey, anyone in Xinjiang who gets a call from him could immediately get flagged by the government. They could be interrogated or even sent to a re-education camp. And his family knows this. By this point, most of them have deleted him from their contacts. So he waits. There's nothing he can do. He starts putting on weight. He sleeps late. He's stuck. For everything he's gone through, Abdurrahman's still pretty young. He's 30. I've known him for about six months now, and he does things all the time that remind me that he's a dad who never got to be a dad. He always brings food when we meet and shares his snacks, like steamed buns with lamb dipped in a spicy vinegar sauce. Once, after an interview, we ran into his friend with her kid at a Uyghur-run cafe. I'll never forget the look on his face while he tossed the toddler up and down in front of the deli cases, this pure, uncomplicated joy. But when I ask him how he feels about all this, he's told me men don't have feelings, which obviously isn't true. Back in December of 2018, when Abdurrahman was living in Istanbul, hearing nothing from his family, things in Xinjiang were getting worse. More and more Uyghurs were sent to re-education centers and later required to do low-wage factory work. Human rights observers say this campaign imprisoned about 10% of Uyghur adults in Xinjiang. But Abdurrahman had no idea what was happening to his family. That's when TikTok came into his life. A friend showed it to him. He was like, you've got to see this. He said, I just uh, found uh, a relative, uh, a, a man I know from my hometown. I asked, yeah, how, how do you, did you find people? How does it work? He told me, uh, you can write the name of your town. Abdurrahman can't write in Mandarin, so his friend types out the name of his hometown for him. It's called Aksu. It's an agricultural center in the West, hugging the mountains that form the border between China, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Suddenly, hundreds of users are popping up on his screen. He goes through video after video. He sees all of these places that he recognizes, the woods and the rivers and the families hanging out in front of their houses. And he can tell things have definitely changed. The cotton fields look the same. The houses are familiar. But to Abdurrahman, Aksu looks like a city under occupation. A lot of video is uh, Chinese uh, occupier put on that, and in their view, there uh, it looks like a happy moment to them. But what the video shown is, for example, a Chinese guy in a Uyghur house. There are only women in the house, and an elder lady uh, in my mom's age. Uh, he, the Chinese man, first tried to dance with her, like almost forcing her to dance, and uh, 
tried to hug her and uh, the Chinese guys uh, looks happy and uh, they thought they are doing something good but it's for in our tradition is a uh, attack like uh, I can see the lady she cannot do anything against it but she don't want to dance with the guy in another video something else seems off it's a group of people clearing ice off of an irrigation ditch with picks and shovels it's winter you can tell by the trees and the coats they're wearing Abdurrahman knows this ditch. It's just a few minutes from his family's house. And to him, it's clear they're being forced to work. We never clear ice from the ditch until springtime, he tells me. There's no need. It just freezes over again. This watching does not seem to be good for Abdurrahman. But he can't stop. TikTok is like this tiny flashlight into the big black box that Xinjiang has become. For a week, he stayed in his apartment, just searching. What he was really hoping for was to see someone he recognized. Any traces of his kids, his wife's parents, his parents. He hadn't been able to speak to them for several years at this point. He watched at the kitchen table, watched on the couch. At night, he'd lie awake, scrolling. On January 4th, 2019, he was in bed and, like usual, scrolling through TikTok. It's around 2 a.m. And Abdurrahman sees this video. It's a little boy with big cheeks, expressive eyes. He's in a school, answering questions in Mandarin Chinese from a teacher, off camera. Behind him, kids are milling about in winter coats. He have a leather uh, jacket, winter jacket. The teacher asks the kid a bunch of questions. What's the name of the fatherland? The People's Republic of China. What's on the fatherland's flag? Five stars on a red flag. Where's your water bottle? Water bottle is here. Where do we put the food we can't finish? In the trash. Abdurrahman doesn't speak Mandarin, but there is one word that stands out to him. Abdulaziz. What's your name, the teacher asks. I'm called Abdulaziz, he says. How old are you? I'm four. That's how old Abdurrahman's son should be now. The video is just 15 seconds long, one of a hundred that he's watched that day. And he can't be sure it's his son, Abdulaziz. But Abdurrahman simultaneously gets this rush of love, believing that it's his son, and this intense fear that it's really him. Because his kids are supposed to be living with their grandparents while he figures out a way to get them home. And it looks like they aren't. So, as soon as I see it, I can feel it's a camp for children. It looks like Abdulaziz is in a boarding school one of the ones set up by the Chinese government to take care of about 500,000 kids, many of whose parents have been detained in re-education camps. Except for short visits home, the kids are generally kept away from their family, taught Mandarin, not Uyghur. Uh, well, yeah, I feel that my son is becoming more Chinese every day. After I understood uh, the video, I became worried about his future, uh, how the regime will teach him and uh, make him an enemy of Uyghur in the future, especially uh, make him an enemy of people like me. That seems to be exactly the point of these schools. They place these kids in a setting where they're removed from their families, their language, their religion, their Uyghurness. As one internal government document claims, the goal of this crackdown is to, quote, break their lineage, break their roots, break their connections, and break their origins. The government is their family now. From this moment, when Abdurrahman saw his son in this video, all he wanted was to get him back. He was consumed by it. I should say, there are lots of parents around the world in this same situation. In the past year or so, I've personally spoken to nine of them in three different countries. Only one was able to get her son out of China, thanks to an influential family member and a Turkish passport. Still, Abdurrahman was convinced that he, a guy who doesn't speak Mandarin, doesn't have political connections, can't even call home, he was going to get his son back. Reporter Duri Buscarin. Coming up, Abdurrahman uses everything he has to get his family back. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio. 
when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Black Box, stories of people who don't have the information they need and want, trying to figure out what's going on and what they should do next. We now continue with Act One of our show. Right before the break, maybe you heard Abdurrahman Toti thought that he spotted his four-year-old son on a TikTok video and decided to set out on a mission to retrieve him and the rest of his family. Reporter Dury Bruscaran picks up with Abdurrahman's story. The first thing he did was he went to the press, made it public. This was risky because his family was still in China. His interviews were published all over the world, in Turkish, English, Portuguese. He was on the BBC and in the New York Times. The media attention was so intense in the beginning that make me, uh, makes me have more hope and trust. They think, okay, something maybe will happen, but then I find out it, it will not happen. With each of these interviews, it felt like he was screaming into the void, trying to get China and the world to look at him. And the response? Silence. He was no closer to getting his family back than he was when they left. He tried more official routes. He went to the Chinese embassy. Nothing. Asked the Turkish government for help. Wrote to the United Nations. He once told me about this plan to move to Canada as a refugee because he thought the government there would have more leverage. Mind you, that would take years to come to fruition. But he truly believes that one day his family will be together again. He has these pictures on his phone. Because there's no portrait of his family, he's made some, using passport photos of him and Parita, a baby picture he has of his daughter, and a screenshot of that video of Abdulaziz. They're photoshopped onto backgrounds, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, cherry blossoms in Japan. So, why do you do that? Can you tell me about that? <laughs> it's because we're a family, he tells me. Last summer, Abdurrahman had some luck. He was scrolling through WeChat, and he found a childhood friend. He says they hatched a plan to buy a plane ticket for her to go back to their hometown, get eyes on the ground. But of course, even when she made it all the way there and was sending him videos of their old neighborhood, she still couldn't speak directly to what she was actually seeing, the significance of it. Everything's fine, she told him. Everything's new and better, as she panned the camera around the empty streets. Abdurrahman was kicked off WeChat, so we don't have the actual videos, and we weren't able to reach his friend without risking her safety. But he says the way she spoke was super casual to avoid drawing attention. The buildings are not here anymore, don't get surprised. Uh, they have built new restaurants here. If you come here, I will uh, buy food for you. And uh, like basically joking. Uh, and, t- and then I ask her, I answer her, no, why should I be surprised? Okay, maybe one day we have chance to meet there. She drove to the street his parents lived on. There were a lot of checkpoints. Eventually, she got there and found an empty lot. His family's house in the city had been demolished. They have another home, a farm. They could have moved there. But this is the point when Abdurrahman started to worry that his parents had been taken to. He hadn't been able to speak to them in four years. Every time he gets more information, it's like this. The more he learns, the worse things seem. Abdurrahman still watches TikTok. It's like a nervous habit. When he's bored, when he's tired. In interviews, when it takes too long for our interpreter to translate a question, he'll sort of lean back and pull his phone out from under the table. Eventually, in January of this year, the app shook loose another piece of information. An old acquaintance wrote to him through TikTok's direct messaging function. The messages start off nonchalantly enough. Hi, how are you, brother? Abdurrahman asked him if he's seen his parents lately. How are they doing? The friend didn't have any information about his son, or his wife, but he could tell Abdurrahman that his family in Aksu is gone. They're not staying at their farm like he had hoped. His elderly father, his mother who has cancer, he gives them name after name. They're gone. They're gone too. And Abdurrahman can't even be sure what this means. They could have been forced off their land, but living elsewhere. They could be detained in a re-education center. They could be in prison. 
From thousands of miles away, it's almost impossible to find out. As he's telling me this, it's the day after he got these messages, and Abdurrahman is getting really worked up. He's talking super, super fast, like a dam has burst, and all of these emotions from the past three years are spilling over. Not only my parents, my parents, brothers, sisters, all of them are gone. They have taken, they have taken everything from me, uh, property, land, family, son, wife, everything I got uh, in my life they have taken from me. I am, I'm ready to do anything I can to take revenge. Those officials in Chinese embassy, I will smash their cars, smash their, uh, 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 their buildings until they, get, uh, they arrest me or uh, they put my parents free. What can I else do? I got enough with just speaking uh, empty words. Throw me in jail. Keep me outside. It's no different, he says. They've killed my soul. I have nothing to live for anymore. We later called the local police station in his hometown and confirmed that no one is at his family's address, even though 13 people used to live there. They knew that Abdurrahman was looking for his family and put a weaker speaker on the line to talk to him. Maybe they've left. Maybe they did something wrong, the speaker said. But she refused to say if they were accused of a crime. Two days after he gets the news about his family, he found something new to fixate on, the mayor of Istanbul. He thought that if he could convince this guy to help him, he might be able to put in a word to Turkish diplomats who help people detained overseas. The mayor was scheduled to speak at an afternoon event, a dinner in honor of the different cultures of the Turkic world, like the Turks, the Uzbeks, and the Uyghurs. I met up with him to go there. He's brought bags of Uyghur breads and fried noodles for the event because an activist told him it might help him get a chance to meet with the mayor face to face. The chances of this resulting in anything are slim. Honestly, it's a Hail Mary. But as down as Abdurrahman was the day before, he's up now, buzzing with excitement in the car on the way over. I'm going there as a human being and asking them to do their duty as a human being, he tells me. The event is happening outside a museum, under a big tent. Abdurrahman pulls his bags of food out of the car, and we wait for the mayor. A few minutes turns into a few hours. He falls back into his phone, flipping through TikTok videos like usual. He looks tired. Finally, just as the program is about to begin, the mayor sweeps in with bodyguards in tow. He's introduced, ushered onto the stage, and he speaks for about 15 minutes. And then the mayor moves to leave. Abdurrahman realizes that this is his chance. He needs to go now. But a group of admirers descends on the mayor, shaking his hand, giving him gifts. Abdurrahman waits on the edge, hanging back, until he sees an opening and makes his move. I stand back with our interpreter to watch. I see him going up. Yeah, and there are bodyguards. He's like the one green sweater in a sea of navy and black suits. He's trying. He's, he's so close. He's so close. He just wants to shake his hand. He disappears into the crowd, and just as the mayor is leaving the tent, he's able to wiggle through to get close enough to greet him. They shake hands. It's just enough time to say hello not to explain a story or to ask for help to find his son. And the mayor moves on. It's the same as every other time he's reached out to the Turkish government for help. Nothing changes. We sent requests for comment to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Public Security, and Ministry of Education, asking for information about Abdurrahman's family. No response. We tried the office of the vice president of the Xinjiang Autonomous Region and the local propaganda department. In that case, someone did pick up, told us their fax machine was broken and that no other fax machines were available. 
So we summarized the questions over the phone. The person on the other end called it sheer nonsense and told us to go online and read the news. The Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. basically said the same thing. I asked for information on Abdurrahman's family and on these cases in general. They responded with a list of YouTube links, videos posted by China's state media service, defending the re-education camp program and claiming that people who say their families have been imprisoned are lying. I would suggest you check some of the rumors being exposed, they wrote. Thanks for reaching out to the embassy. We also can't reach Parita. We confirmed as many details as we could about Parita and Abdurrahman's life together with a friend of theirs. It took more than a year before Abdurrahman finally saw a small glimmer of success. Weirdly, it was the pandemic that did it. This winter, news of the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan started to filter out of China. The videos Abdurrahman started to see on TikTok were of empty streets, people stuck at home without much to eat. Some would set their videos to music pulled from zombie movies. Abdurrahman began to worry about Xinjiang. Social distancing is happening there, but the Uyghurs in prison don't have that option. Somebody get infected amongst uh, the prisoners or somebody in camp, then all of them will be infected, so I'm worried. And it's not just the people in prison. People detained in re-education centers can also get infected or the kids who have been separated from their parents and placed in government schools. So this winter, a group of parents in Istanbul started planning a trip to the Chinese embassy to show up in person and demand access to their children. Before anything was finalized, the parents started to get phone calls from the consulate. Abdurrahman got one, too. It was last Friday. I came up from the Friday prayer. I was driving and transporting something to Atashahar. And I got a phone call while I'm driving. It was a Uyghur. He said, I have a good news for you. The caller was a translator for the Chinese consulate. He had information about Abdurrahman's children, he said. Your kids are with their uncle, the caller told him not in a boarding school. They're safe. Okay, which uncle is that? And uh, the guy said, I don't know. So I said, okay, let me, uh, let's meet. I will, where are you? And he said, no, we don't have to meet. Uh, this is only news I have. He got this call in March. He still has no idea if it was true or not. This drop of information, an unprovable bit of news that he desperately wants to hear. It could be a lie, designed to placate, keep him quiet. He knows this. But Abdurrahman insists that even if it's not true, it's still good news. What this phone call means to him is that now, someone in the government has finally acknowledged his jumping and screaming and waving his hands. Someone, somewhere, might actually be responding. This is good, good news, but until I see them directly, I will fight for their case. Until you see a video or until you see them here in Turkey? Until I get them to Turkey. It's about I meet my son and I take, start taking care of them as a father. I will not stop. For me, it's a good news. It gives me hope. Abdurrahman has renewed hope that they'll be together again. Because this time, after four years of trying to find his family, the black box has spoken back. But even this tiny victory is short-lived. A month later, Abdurrahman calls me from the road. He's driving, balancing the phone on the steering wheel. He says a contact from TikTok has been sending him information about Aksu wrote to him to tell him that local government officials went on the village loudspeaker to make a public announcement, saying anyone with information about the Toti family, Abdurrahman's family, is forbidden to share it. Look, we are now living in 21st century, and if people lose their cats or their dogs, they will have right to look for them. 
in my case, of course, I have right to get information about my family as a father, as a son. But they are even forbidding me to get any information about my family members. His fear is that they are going to disappear. There would be no charges, no prison sentence, no anticipated date of their release, no communication with the outside world. And he'll never know what became of them. And what frustrates him is that right now, people he knows are starting to hear news of what's happening to their families. That they've moved out of re-education centers and into low-wage factory work or formal prison sentences. They're getting answers. But Abdurrahman still knows nothing. For years, he's been fighting for information. He may never get it. Dory Buscarin in Istanbul. State of emergency. So our show today is about people trying to find their way in situations where they don't have much information, or anyway, the information they need. And of course, that's the situation the whole world is in right now, with the spread of COVID-19, as we try to make sense of how to treat it, how to deal with it as a society. A couple weeks ago, my coworker Miki Meek talked to one emergency medical worker in Brooklyn, Anthony Almagera. He's the vice president of Local 3621 of the EMS Officers Union in New York City. EMS, Emergency Medical Services, and it's part of the fire department. Even a few weeks ago, they were totally overwhelmed. Anthony was out responding to an endless stream of 911 calls. And Mickey checked back in with him recently to see how he's doing. He said that even though the number of infections in the city has finally started to slow, his crew is still in uncharted territory. And a lot of the calls they're getting are for cardiac arrests. Apparently the virus, in addition to attacking the lungs, can also put stress on the heart and sometimes directly infect the heart. Some days, the number of cardiac arrest calls coming into New York City's 911 system has been huge, over 300. It's about four times higher than before the pandemic. Most of those people are dying at home. Here's Mickey talking to Anthony and then to one of his colleagues. Anthony, how are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm, o- I'm okay, I guess. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's still crazy. Uh, this past Sunday, I did 13 cardiac arrests in a 16-hour shift. Jeez, 13. 13. 13 cardiac arrests. What does that day look like for you? So, you know, I wake up, I put the uniform on. Uh, I'm sitting there trying to mentally get myself geared up for another day of this. Um, I get a Red Bull. You know, if you're going to be in the middle of hell, you might as well be alert. Um, and, you know, I'm going to work and my brain is sitting there. It's it's weird because my brain is sitting there going, okay, you know uh, I got to get ready because I know it's coming. Then it starts coming. 6.30 in the morning, it started coming. I go, elderly gentleman, fever, cough, symptoms. We try and work work him up. We're unsuccessful. I tell the family, I'm sorry. There's nothing more we can do. And then uh, I go back out into the truck. I hit the button. I get called for the other cardiac arrest. And I go, uh, another family. The patient's family saying that he had a cough for five days and he was weak with chills. We try and work him up. We're unsuccessful. We pronounce. Uh, I hit the button. I get hit again for another cardiac arrest. I go. This particular patient, we weren't able to work up because he had rigor mortis, so he had been dead for a little while. But the family states, oh, you know, he had fever, cough symptoms. So uh, we were like, okay, you know. I'm sorry for your loss. There's another one I have to say, I'm sorry for your loss. And and then the next call, and this is going to sound weird to the everyday person, but um, the next call was a suicide. There's no fever cough. So it's like, oh, a regular call, so to speak, you know, as opposed to having to get all crazy with the gowns and the gloves and the mask. And it's, it's such a morbid scene, but there's three of us that are like, well, this is one patient we don't have to worry about getting this virus from and it's like you know to feel relief in the middle of this tragic death i mean this is somebody who felt hopeless enough to go and commit suicide you know we still have the empathy for him and and whatnot but 
hey, you know, we're going to get through this one without getting infected by anything. And then I hit the button. The button shows that I'm available and uh, I'm on my way to another cardiac arrest. You know, I've never had a panic or an anxiety attack, and I feel like one is going to come on really soon. This is another paramedic in New York City I'm calling Cassandra. She didn't want me to use her real name because she didn't get permission from the fire department to talk to me. I've been checking in with her regularly over the past few weeks, and she's processing her days differently than Anthony. Because she's not a lieutenant, she spends her entire 12-hour day in an ambulance. I talked to her recently after she'd finished one of her shifts. She'd gotten home at 3 a.m. and took a bubble bath to try and calm down, but it didn't work. How much more worse than this can it get, you know? Like, we're, we're at worst to me. This is my worst. Like, I did 37 cardiac arrests last week. I, I told somebody, I'm sorry for your loss, 37 times last week. 37 times, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, and yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I've, I, I don't think I've ever done that in a year. Like, 37 cardiac arrests, that, that's insane to me. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, my soul hurts. I'm not used to seeing all this death all at once. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a person, like, I'm very strong-headed. So it's just like, if I see death, it's like, okay, this happened. I process it quick, and I'm like, I deliver my message to the family, and it's like, damn, that was messed up. And I move on, you know? It's not like it, it, it sticks with me for a while. And right now, it's, that's not the case. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm holding each and every one of them in because I don't have time to just put it away. I was wondering, are there any particular calls that stick with you right now? Um, there was actually one cardiac arrest that I had last week that wasn't COVID-related, but uh, mm-hmm. the guy was 107 years old, and, and he was fighting. He really wanted to live, and I was shocked at that, and that kind of made me a little bit happy because, you know, I thought we were going to get him back. You know, we didn't. We pronounced him at the end, but he, he was fighting. <laughs> he really wanted to live. What do you fear most right now? Like, what's, what's the fear that's on your mind this morning? I'm a ticking bomb. Like if I don't start, you know, dealing with stuff, I'm I'm gonna blow up on my partner or on somebody. And God forbid that's on a patient because I don't wanna be mean to somebody that just lost a loved one, you know what I mean? I, I don't know how I'm gonna react to not dealing with all this death, you know, constantly. Do you have a plan? I don't. I don't have time to make a plan. <laughs> Anthony, when I talked to you last, you know, it was very hard having to deliver news to people um, and not being able to comfort them, having to keep a distance. And so, you know, I talked to you about a little over two weeks ago. um, And I'm wondering, has that gotten easier for you? Have you readjusted? No, it's not easier. And to be honest with you, I don't want it to be easy. If it gets easy for me, that means maybe I'm suffering from a little um, uh, emotional fatigue. I'm burning out. You know, if I still feel sadness, that's a good thing. I mean, it sucks, <laughs> but it's a good thing. It means I'm still feeling. You know, I in my head, I try, I try and remember that the sun does come out the next day. And I know that sounds corny, but it's, <laughs> it's awfully cloudy at the moment. Um, yeah. But, uh... The thing that's hard about this is, as a medic, you are eternally hopeful in the face of fighting death every day. Because even if you didn't get them this time, you know that the next time you will, right? But uh, this virus out here, this pandemic, we're not getting them next time. Right now, about 15% of the emergency medical service workers for the New York Fire Department are out on sick leave. At least three are in the ICU on ventilators, and one longtime worker, a watch commander in downtown Brooklyn named Greg Hodge, died earlier this week from COVID. Anthony took this news hard. He says Greg is the one who trained him when he first came on the job. Nikki Meek is one of the producers of our show. Just a program note after that story, if you or somebody you know might need help, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. By the way, the EMS unions in New York City have been in a dispute with the city government. The starting pay for an EMT in New York is roughly $35,000. Paramedics start at $48,000. And when the pandemic started, they asked for hazard pay since they were putting their lives on the line in a way that was more than usual. And also for better benefits for their families if they should die on the job. 
they have gotten nowhere with this. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has said he will look into it, but not until the crisis is over. Excess consumes you. He says, oh no, what have I done? Don't lose what moves you. Go ahead, call me when this is done. Our program is produced today by Robin Semyon. People who put our show together today includes Bim Adewunmi, Emmanuel Berry, Zoe Chase, Dan Chivas, Sean Cole, Aviva de Kornfeld, Nora Gill, Damian Grave, Mickey Meek, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ben Phelan, Nadia Raymond, Christopher Sotala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editors, Diane Wu and Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editor, David Kestenbaum. Interpreters who helped us with our story in Act One, Samarjan Saidi and Nasir Sadiq. Esther Perel's podcast, Where Should We Begin, that we talked about at the top of the show, is now available on Spotify and any other platform where you get your podcasts. Special thanks today to Darren Byler, Max Balkus, David Brophy, Souvenir Omer, Rukia Tersun, Ushan Uyghur, and Kayla Gabler. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, while in lockdown these last few weeks, he's been working on his relationship. His wife has an old Al Green record that they like to snuggle to. It's an accelerator. It's a relationship accelerator. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Yeah.